Morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I always ask the tech team as we get started, I say, let's get started. What could possibly go wrong? And today, everything did. So what would we do without our screens, right? We need our screens to know what to say and what to do. And uh, So kids, you guys are dismissed, right? Uh, elementary school, you guys are out. And uh, youth group is doing what? What are they doing? Are they going out with you, right? Youth group are headed out with Don Jay to get us ready for our feast. I want to encourage everybody, um, as Don Jay did, um, do hang out well, with us today afterward. If you peek right out those doors, the whole area is canopied, so it's all shady over there. It's going to be kind of a shady get-together. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. So, yeah, so stay with us. And, uh, and enjoy. There's, I think, plenty of food, and you got to eat somewhere, and it's hot today, so you might as well just hang out and, uh, and uh, enjoy a meal with us. So I want to mention uh, a couple quick things before we start. Um, number one you see back in the bulletin is the Israel trip announcement, and it's in the bulletin um, simply because we're going to, probably at the end of this month, we're going to close the registrations for that trip uh, to Israel. As we've mentioned, we're going uh, on a tour of Israel. Uh, our church is hosting a tour that kind of has blown up into this big thing. We were worried we wouldn't get 40 people, and now we have 120 people that are going on this tour. Um, almost 60 of those people are right here from this church. So if you've not yet signed up, there is still room for you, but we are going to close it probably at the end of this month. So if you're interested in going, I don't think I have any more of the paper brochures, but the brochure is on the church website, and uh, you can check it out, and the, the link through to, to put your deposit in with the tour company is on there. Uh, I just don't want anybody to miss out if you are interested in going with us. It's going to be a, a fantastic trip. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to mention before we started, if you were with us a few weeks back, we had the Browers. And we announced kind of a new partnership with a, a ministry down there, Refugio Community Church, or as Pastor Don says it, what did he say, Refugio or something, something, and I can't say it like he does. But um, anyway, we're excited to, to kind of have a partner church down ministering uh, in the city of Valdivia uh, in Chile. And... Um, we're supporting them as a church with a monthly contribution to help with their ongoing ministry expenses. But as we got started here, we gifted them with just an extra. I said, what's your biggest need? And he said, we need a sound system. He wanted like a Madonna mic to run around on the stage with one of those guys. But um, so anyway, we helped them uh, to purchase something. And then I wanted to show if it works, we'll, we'll preface it that I wanted to show a quick video that he sent. Uh, sent me yesterday. So let's try to roll that and see what happens. Good morning, Calvary Chapel Mountain View. This is Pastor Don with Refugio Comunidad Cristiana here in Valdivia, Chile. We just wanted to say thank you for your prayers and for your support. Uh, we are so grateful this month to have received your donation because with that donation, uh, we were able finally to purchase a sound system for the church. And as you know, and as I know, we want the word of God to be heard. And now with this sound system, we're going to be able to do that more efficiently for the hearer. So once again, we just wanted to say thank you. And I just pray that this morning, that the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be showered upon you. God bless you. Amen. Awesome. 
Super. So, uh, of course, we're excited to be able to help them with their, uh, you know, some of their physical needs down there. But most importantly, if you'll just remember them in your prayers, just remember to pray for all the work that God is doing down there. And we'll try to have more updates from them uh, as we get them. And we're even talking about potentially uh, sending a little team down there, maybe even next summer, uh, to get involved in some outreach and some ministry um, down there. So... With that said, we have a great text today, and we're running all out of time to, uh, to get to it. So let's pray, and we're going to jump in this morning, but let's ask the Lord to really bless uh, our time in the Word today. So Father, we thank you for today, Lord, and we thank you for our church family, Lord. We thank you for all that you're doing in us and doing through us, Lord, and pray that you continue that work even now, Lord, as we continue our time of worship, Lord, by, um, by studying your word. And Father, we pray that this would be as worship unto you, Lord, and we pray that this would be a time where you would minister to us, Lord. We pray for the ministry of your spirit, Lord, that he would teach us, guide us into all truth, Lord, and we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what he would say to each one of us this morning. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said... Amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles here that you can use, and you can simply raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. You're welcome to call up a Bible on your phone if you'd like. I'm going to teach out of the New King James translation, but any translation is a good one. But we actually have made it into the next chapter in Mark's account of the life and the ministry of Jesus, and we're going to look at this kind of this first part of chapter 9. And it's the account of yet another uh, sort of a significant miracle of Jesus. And there are so many events in this biblical record as we've been looking at Jesus' life. So many of these events that have been miraculous. You know, so many that just Mark has recorded for us so far. We've got these miracles of multiplication of the bread and the fish. And of course, John talks about the multiplication of the wine, right? We've seen miracles of healing and of demons being cast out and people being raised from the dead, cleansed of leprosy. And each and every time we just rejoice, you know, as people's lives are touched and they experience this healing. And even as we've seen the Lord Jesus work very often in these unorthodox, very unexpected ways so that we have come to kind of expect the unexpected from him. So we have all of those wonderful miracles. And then also within the gospel record, we have a few other recorded events which are both miraculous, but they're also a little bit mysterious, where not only is kind of the method a little bit puzzling, but also where the meaning or the, the message itself behind the miracle isn't quite as crystal clear. And I think that this morning's text is one of those, as we're going to look together at a very familiar passage. It's what we would all simply probably call the transfiguration of Jesus. And like all good kind of mystery stories, I think what we're going to see is that the meaning behind it for us as believers should be of great interest to us as we are going to get uh, a very fresh sense. We're going to really get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And I think that as we look at it, we're going to see, again, a, a very powerful application and a very encouraging exhortation for every one of us. Now, you remember as we've been looking at these very recent texts, 
each and every text, right, is just another mind blower for the disciples as Jesus now is really starting to just pour into them and starting to prepare them for his departure, which of course is coming just five to six months from this point. And here he is when we last left off, he's with the boys on this field trip up to Caesarea Philippi. This was this area that was the epicenter of paganism, you remember. And he'd brought them to this place to reveal himself to them in such a powerful way as the one who would finally triumph over all of these different false religious systems that were being practiced there. And it was in this spot we remember Peter's inspired confession of Jesus as the Christ, right? The long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And then that mind-blowing revelation that Jesus gave to the disciples of this coming crucifixion for him. And then the very surprising instruction the very next week, right, that, that those who follow after him that they would experience the very same thing, right? Death to self, right? All that suffering which would eventually lead to that eternal glory as the Son of God finally comes in his kingdom. And so it's right at the end of all of that, in what is actually the very same scene where we left off in Mark 8, Jesus makes this very puzzling promise as we pick up now in chapter 9. Now remember, the chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired, right? Those were added by men as the years went on simply to help us study. So the truth is that this promise that we pick up with in verse 1 of chapter 9 would probably have been better if it was included at the end of chapter 8 in Mark's account, in the same way that Matthew does in his record. But what we read here in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says that he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, if we thought that the disciples were anxious before, Right, if we thought that they were filled with this kind of misplaced, kind of messianic fervor, this expectation of what Jesus was about to do in short order, right, as the conquering Messiah that he was bringing in and that he would be setting up this kingdom. When they heard this, they must have thought, this is it. He's going to do it, right? I'm not sure what all that stuff was about the cross and about dying, but this sounds to me like it's time for us to see the kingdom. And it was, but it wasn't. And it's almost, when we read this, it's sort of like this is kind of some sort of a mixed messianic message, so much so that this statement has puzzled students of the Bible since Jesus made it. And some have suggested that he was talking about his coming resurrection, right, and his ascension. Or that he was talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and then the subsequent spread of Christianity by the church. Others have suggested he was talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. I'm not sure how that fits. but Or even that they were talking about the, the second coming of Jesus, right? His bodily return to the earth. Now, there's only one problem and that that is that none of those possible explanations really make much sense. And I think that the bigger problem 
is that the answer to the question of exactly what Jesus meant, it's actually answered for us right here in the next few verses. And I say that it's a problem because I think it points out the problem that oftentimes if people would simply keep reading in their Bibles, so often all of their questions would eventually be answered. Because what we see next as Mark moves on in his narrative, that what Jesus was talking about was a very specific event which was actually just around the corner. Because look at the first half of verse two. It says that now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. So after six days, right? So it's now been less than a week since all of that, that foundational confession, right? All of that deeper revelation. And we have to think that during those days, here the disciples have probably debated and they have probably discussed practically what it was that Jesus meant with all that talk about his death and his resurrection. No doubt they each had time to kind of you know, decide individually whether or not this whole thing was really for them personally. Right? And we see that they're all still here with them. I think also probably they had to ponder all of this prophetically. Right Here they're wondering, look, what's going to happen scripturally? What about all those promises uh, that the Old Testament makes about the kingdom? And if Jesus is talking now about some new thing called the church, and he's going to establish that and work through that, and what in the world's going to happen to all of those promises about the kingdom? And so on the sixth day, in the midst of all of this pondering and debate and discussion and decision, now all of a sudden we see it says Peter. Call, Jesus calls Peter, James, and John, calls those guys away from the other, the rest of the 12, and asks them to go with him on this trip up a mountain. Now remember where they were. They'd just been down there at Banyas, right, right at the base of Mount Hermon. So now guess where they're going to go? They're going to head straight up up high, up Mount Hermon, right? It says a high mountain. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in all of Israel. So they're going to head right up the mountain and they're going to be alone there with Jesus. Now again, some had suggested that he only took these three simply because what he was about to reveal them to them he didn't want to make public just yet. Some also would suggest that these three had kind of special roles as leaders amongst Leaders, And then there are, there are those who suggest that he probably took Peter, James, and John because he knew that these were the three that probably needed some closer supervision than the rest of them, right? These were the three that were likely to get themselves in trouble if left alone too long. And I think probably a little bit of all of these things was true. The, the truth is that Peter, James, and John were unique among the rest, Right? They were unique in their character. They were unique in their calling. They will be unique, we see, in their coming ministries. All through the book of Acts, we see these three guys really in the spotlight as the church kind of gets to its feet. We see them shepherding and directing and preaching and teaching and writing. Right, Each of them we see living and dying these incredible lives of faith. Of course, James was the first to be martyred. Peter, church tradition tells us, was crucified, but upside down, right? John, we know, was boiled in oil and then banished to the island of Patmos because they just couldn't kill this guy, 
right? And so we see that throughout all of his time with them, we do see Jesus very uniquely kind of preparing Peter, James, and John for what it is that he knew was going to come to them each personally. And I bring it up because the, the truth is that he's doing the very same thing each and every day for you, and he's doing it for me. He's always working to prepare us uniquely for what it is that he knows that he has for us individually, right? He'll prepare us specifically through church services or, or Bible studies or small groups or books that we're reading, right? Conversations, words of encouragement, trials. He'll prepare us through those daily times of devotion and prayer. And all of it he does uniquely and personally because he knows the things that lie ahead for us individually. Whether it's some full-blown ministry that he's calling us to, or just an individual opportunity that he's going to present to us in order to minister in his name. I, I don't know about you, but it's always amazing to me how I can read something or be studying something or just hear something only to find out that, that later that day or the next day or maybe a week later, to discover that I'm in some sort of a situation where lo and behold, I need exactly that information, right? I need that exact same encouragement that I had received from the Lord. And what an exhortation for us, how important it is to just stay sensitive to his voice, really, really stay open to the spirit. And when we do, I think that we will just see the Lord's faithfulness as he constantly and consistently is preparing us for the future ministry he has prepared for us, right? He'll do so just in the same way that he's doing here with these three guys. Right here they go now up with him alone on this mountain, and they were about to see something that no one else had ever or would ever see. Because suddenly it says, look at verse 2, standing there with Jesus, here they are, it says that he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now, again, as far as the written record is concerned, this is the only time that Jesus would reveal his glory in this way while he was here on the earth. And this is one of those passages, really, where language fails us, right? Even the best CGI in the latest blockbuster multiverse kind of a movie, whatever, it just doesn't do it justice, right? What these guys saw was even better than this fantastic stained glass, right? Even better than that. It's hard to believe. But Peter, James, and John had just gotten a true glimpse of the glory of Jesus, and what they had just seen is what he had just promised. They are seeing the Son of Man there in power in his kingdom. And we see that words just simply escape them. Here, you know, Mark is searching, you know, he talks about the whitest, brightest thing he can think of, right? Exceedingly white like snow and then starts talking about laundry and stuff. Luke says that the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And then, of course, Matthew tells us that the face of Jesus shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. 
And I think what's especially important for us to understand, right, especially here, Matthew compares the face of Jesus to the sun, but that the glory of Jesus that the disciples were witnessing here, it wasn't simply something that was being reflected on the outside, but this was truly something that was radiating out of him from the inside. Because what Jesus was doing was he was just allowing his essential glory to shine forth, right? John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And now he's allowing that light to emanate from within him. Right? In Hebrews chapter 1, comparing Jesus to the Father, it says that he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his per person. That's who Jesus is. And again, it's important for us to understand that the, the, the miracle of the transfiguration essentially wasn't a new miracle actually, but you think about it, it's really just the temporary pausing of an ongoing miracle, really, right? The real miracle was that most of the time that Jesus could keep from displaying this glory that was inherent in him, right? That he could shroud that glory as he humbled himself in a human body. Now, some of you were here years ago when I first came to CCMB, and I remember that one of the first texts that we kind of looked at together on a special occasion, one of my favorite passages, John chapter 2, it's that miracle of the turning of the water into wine at the wedding. And when I did it, I taught it, you know, as any good Bible teacher would, I said that this was the first miracle that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. And it was right after service that Dr. Vernon, right, one of our seasoned super saints, he stopped me and he said, well, Pastor Bill, that really wasn't the first miracle that Jesus did. And of course, I'm panicking. They're standing there, right? I think, oh, did I miss something? Did I teach this wrong? And, and Dr. Vernon said, you know, the first miracle that Jesus did technically was the incarnation, right? As Jesus was born into the world as a human being. And when he said that to me, I have to admit, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief because we were both right, right, sort of. But Dr. Vernon was exactly right that the incarnation of the Lord Jesus was nothing less than an absolute miracle. And not simply because he stepped into human history, but as, as Paul would later write, that, that Jesus being in the form of God... Right, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And I think that the very first thing that the miracle of the transfiguration does is it reminds us of the great reality of the incarnation, and it really gives us a glimpse of the glory of the humility of Jesus, right? Charles Spurgeon, right, the prince of preachers, he said this about this. He said that for Christ to be glorious was almost a less matter than for him to restrain or hide his glory. It is forever his glory that he concealed his glory and that he was rich for our sakes, he became and in this sense, again, I think there's a message here for each and every one of us as Christians in our calling as Christians to be humble servants. 
right? We've talked a lot, right, about our new citizenship as Christians and our, our calling into the kingdom, but rarely do we relish talking about our calling to humility, right? But the truth is that in the kingdom of Jesus, honor and greatness always come from humility, Right? Peter says, be submissive to one another, be clothed with humility. He says, because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Right? We have to first go down so that God can lift us up. And it's a hard truth to consider, right? but all of the great servants of God have been humble servants of God. And it's hard for us to consider because by nature, it's not our place it's, it's not our, our normal desire to want to take that place of a servant and humble ourselves. By nature, what do we all want? We want to be celebrities instead of being servants. And some of you are old enough to remember Walter Cronkite, right? The, the anchor man for the CBS Evening News in the 60s and 70s. And at that time, certainly, he was probably one of the most recognizable people in our country, arguably perhaps even in the world. And the, the truth about Walter Cronkite is he loved to travel on his boat. And there's a funny story that's told about one day he and his wife were traveling down the Mystic River in Connecticut, which is apparently, you know, it, it's this body of water that kind of has these tricky turns through some shallow water. And as they were navigating those turns one day, there was a boatload of young people that came by and they started shouting out and waving their arms. And so, of course, Cronkite saw them and he waved back and, you know, his wife turned to him and he said, honey, don't you know why they were shouting? And he said, well, of course, everyone recognizes me. They were saying, hello, Walter, hello, Walter. She says, no, they were shouting, low water, low water. <laughs> now, I don't think that there's any network news anchors in here, although maybe there are. But the point is that in the very same way, a high view of ourselves can very often run us right into low water. Guess see what I did there, low water with the, I thought you did. But think about it, especially with social media now, right? We spend so much time and energy establishing and perfecting and cultivating it and really curating this social persona, right? This social standing and we're calculatingly kind of climbing, right? The, the rungs focused on us, right? Focused on how, what our brand is, right? Our personal brand, but true humility means that we should really accept and adopt a much more modest, even a low view of our own importance. And really it's only when we do this that we find that we are set free from kind of that tyranny of being so self-obsessed, the way that our culture just drives. And it's, what's interesting is that even the secular world is starting to catch on to this. And the secular world is starting to recognize the real value of humility as a real virtue. And there was a fairly recent article in Psychology Today that's actually pretty insightful, especially for us reading it sort of from a biblical perspective. Here, it's kind of a long quote, but I think it's worth it. The article includes, it says, recent studies show that humility, humility is connected with many forms of pro-social behavior. 
While some misunderstand humility as low self-esteem or self-denigration, a proper conception of this virtue has both self-regarding and other-regarding components. The humble person keeps their accomplishments, gifts, and talents in a proper perspective. They have self-knowledge and are aware of their limitations as an individual and as a human being, but humble individuals are also oriented towards others. They value the welfare of other people and have the ability to forget themselves as well when appropriate. And then it goes on later to say, interestingly, the empirical research on humility shows that this trait has great value. Humility has been linked with better academic performance, job performance, excellence in leadership. Humble people have better social relationships, avoid deception in their social interactions. They tend to be forgiving, grateful, and cooperative, more generous with both their time and their money. And here's their conclusion. It says, given its appropriateness for us as limited and fallible human beings, and its value for both individual flourishing and social welfare, Humility is a trait worth cultivating. Well, I don't know about you, but I think it is always so refreshing, right, when even the secular experts, through their scientific observation, they just come to the very same conclusions that we knew all along from the pages of Scripture, right? Just like Jesus promised, humility leads to greatness. Right, because what it allows is it allows for our focus naturally to shift from inward to outward. Right? We can focus on those around us. C.S. Lewis, who we talked about last week, he famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's allowing the needs of others to come before your own needs. It's thinking of their good before your good, just like Jesus did. So that's the glory of his humility. And I just pray, again, every time we, 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 we just never lose awe of the incarnation. And each and every time we think about the incarnation, we'd be filled in a fresh new way with just a sense of awe and reverence for just how truly humble Jesus was. And I think for the disciples here, I think that they had to be experiencing the exact same thing, right? Think about it. They had known Jesus intimately and personally, right? They'd known him as a friend and as a teacher, but now they are seeing him in, in such a different light. And I have to think that it probably produced or, or provoked within them just a fresh sense of awe and a completely new sense of understanding and, and, a, and a reverence for the sacrifice that he made to come here. And many years later, of course, I think John would reflect on this and he would recall back to this event when he wrote in his, the beginning of his gospel that we beheld his glory, the glory as a, of only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And now as we go on, they're going to not only see next the glory of his humility, but then now they're going to really get a beautiful sense of the glory of his centrality. Look at verse 4. It said, and Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So remarkably here, you've got Jesus transfigured, then all of a sudden these two Old Testament figures also appear, and they start to talk with him. Now, we know Moses had lived about 1,400 years before, Elijah about 900 years before, and yet somehow they're alive again in some sort of glorified, resurrected state. 
right? But what a beautiful picture for us, a portrait of the coming kingdom in a couple of significant ways. You know, first of all, it's very fair to think that these two particular people from the Old Testament appear there together because they represent both the law, right, that's Moses, and the prophets, right, Elijah. So they, they represent all of the recognized, received Jewish writings to date. Even today, you know, if you talk to a Jewish person, they don't talk about the Old Testament because they don't believe that there's what? A New Testament. Instead, Jewish people still today will talk about the law and the prophets. And so we see both of them represented here with Jesus because the whole of the Old Testament revelation come together here to meet with him on the Mount of Transfiguration because the whole of the Old Testament revelation finds its fulfillment in him. Right, Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, right, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He says, do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And we know that everything in the Old Testament, right, it is all pictures and shadows and types pointing forward to the coming ministry of Jesus Christ. And Moses and Elijah picture that for us here. Secondly, I think, we can also safely say that Moses and Elijah picture for us here all of those who have died in faith, right? Now, more specifically, Moses represents all of those who die and then go to glory, but Elijah, you remember his story, he represents those people who would be caught up into heaven without ever seeing death. Remember 2 Kings 2, Elijah was taken up into heaven in a flaming chariot as Elisha looked on in just the same way without the flaming chariot, right? But just the same way we anticipate that coming event called the rapture, right? Described in 1 Thessalonians where it says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So in a lot of ways, Elisha is a beautiful Old Testament picture of this New Testament prophecy. Further, some people see Peter, James, and John in this picture. They represent for us future Israel after they're restored to the Lord. Right? They would be all of those people who will be alive in physical bodies in the end times who will then enter into the blessings of the kingdom of God. And I, I point all of that out to say that in a very real sense, right, these two men from heaven and these three disciples on earth represent for us all of the different people who will come together in the, the coming of Jesus' kingdom in its fullness. Right, Jesus will be in his glory here, just as he is in his transfiguration, and that coming kingdom will take place here on earth, just as this obviously did. So this is just such a wonderful foretaste of the kingdom, just exactly as Jesus had promised, just up in verse 1. Right, how awesome is that? And later on in life, of course, Peter caught this. 
right? He understood what had happened and he never forgot it. And that's why he wrote in 2 Peter, he says, we, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Because for Peter, the experience that he had there on this mountain, it fortified his faith, he says, in the prophecies that you read in the Old Testament. Right? He is seeing those prophecies personified. And again, I think that's exactly what happens to us as we read and as we study God's word and the, the scriptures start to come alive to us as the spirit just illuminates truth for us. And then we have these experiences with the Lord only to confirm those exact things in us. One more quick thing I think is important before we go on. Does it seem at all strange Mark very specifically notes that here's Jesus and here's Moses and Elijah and the three of them are hanging out in this glorified state and he says they're having a chat, right? They're having a conversation. They're talking together. Now, wouldn't we just love to know what these guys are talking about? Well, I have good news for you because we do know, right? Luke tells us exactly what they were talking about. It says that two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what were they were talking about? They were talking about the cross. More specifically, they were talking about the resurrection that was to follow. The word decease there literally is the word exodus. They were talking about the exodus of Jesus, where he would escape the power of sin and death, where he would leave, lead the captives free out of their bondage, just as Moses had done so many years before in type in the exodus out of Egypt. And again, what I love here is that of all the things these guys could have possibly talked about, their minds and their hearts were focused on one thing, and that was Jesus' wondrous death and his glorious coming resurrection because both the law and the prophets both bear witness to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, right? What else is there that could be better to talk about than that? So this is a wonderfully glorious scene. It is probably what we would call picture perfect, Right? It would have left any one of us speechless, and yet we see next that unfortunately, rather than stay speechless, what does it say in verse 5? It says, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And again, I think, you know, for Peter, you know, this is good, Lord. This is exactly what I've been talking about. Just like I told you, forget all of that business about suffering. Forget all that stuff about being rejected and being crucified. Let's just build some tabernacles up here with the three of you guys. And let's get this kingdom thing really going. I mean, that seems to be the essence of what Peter's trying to say. And of course, people have wondered for about 2,000 years, 
why in the world would Peter say what he said, and what did he mean by what he said? And once again, if we simply read the very next verse, Mark tells us exactly why Peter said what he said. Look at verse 6. He said it because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Remember, we've said in so many ways, Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel, right? Mark was a disciple of Peter. All of the accounts of eyewitness testimony in Mark's gospel would have come from Peter. So here we have, probably in Peter's own words, why he said what he said, and it is most simply because he didn't have any idea what he should have said, but he felt like he just had to say something. The truth is, though, he should not have said anything because look what happens next in verse 7. It says, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. So what's that old saying? If you can't improve upon silence, don't. Right? And not only did Peter not improve upon the silence, but think about it, Peter probably actually just interrupted a heavenly conversation that Jesus was having with Moses and Elijah, right? About the wonders of the cross, right? Can you even imagine? You know, poor Peter. Think about it, back in chapter eight, he had just been rebuked by Jesus. Now it's less than a week later and he just got rebuked by the Father. Now, I know that none of us ever say things that we shouldn't or say things before we've thought them all the way through. But again, we need to cut Peter a little bit of slack because who wouldn't want to just hang out there basking in that kind of heavenly scene? And again, no shortage of speculation about what Peter may or may not have been thinking, but whatever it was, the point is it was wrong. Because what he had just done effectively is he had put Jesus on the very same level with Moses and Elijah. He wanted to build these three equal little shelters or these little tents of meeting, right? That's what a tabernacle was. It was a place that you would set up where you would meet with God. And Peter wanted to build one for each of them. And that's really thoughtful of him. And yet the truth is that Jesus isn't just another Moses. He's not just another Elijah. He's not even just a greater Moses or Elijah, but Jesus is nothing less than the Son of God. He is nothing less than God the Son. And this truth is so very important to the Father that the Father now you know, becomes part of this scene. He visits them from heaven in the cloud of his, what we call his Shekinah glory, right? This is that very same pillar of, of cloud that stood by Israel and that led Israel through the wilderness by day, right? The very same cloud of glory in which he hovered there over the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place, Right, both in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. The, the cloud, the Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of God the Father himself. And now God speaks from that same cloud hovering up here above the top of Mount Hermon. And he makes it very clear that Jesus is unique. He is the beloved son. And he deserves our special attention. And we need to hear him above everyone else. 
worlds, right? So this glimpse of the glory of Jesus, we've got this glory of his humility, we've got this glory of his centrality because he is at the very center of God's redemptive work with mankind. You would think, right, that, it, the, that when God the Father starts to speak from heaven, that he would say, listen to me. But notice he says, listen to him. Because everything and everyone, including the Father, points us to Jesus. And make no mistake, Jesus is the Father's final word. Right? He is the sole solution for the redemption of all mankind. Again, the, the book of Hebrews starts out. It says that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. We've just talked about, right, the, the law and the prophets all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Remember in Luke 24, that wonderful story where Jesus meets those two men on the road to Emmaus, and he walks with them, and he starts really ministering to them, and it says that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Understand, guys, the Bible is not simply a collection of interesting stories with some moral lessons attached. The Bible is one overarching story about salvation that's found only in Jesus Christ. It's the story of God's kingdom and the way that this kingdom is brought about through the blood of God's Son. Right, there's this wonderful, you may have heard this term, the scarlet thread of redemption. It runs all the way through the scriptures because the blood of Christ runs all the way through the scriptures symbolically. Right, it starts way back with the animals that were killed in the Garden of Eden so that God could provide coverings for Adam and Eve. It runs through as the, God took the ram, you know, the, the ram that took Isaac's place as the sacrifice on the altar at Mount Moriah. It runs right to the Passover lambs. It runs through the institution of the sacrificial system. We think about the scarlet rope of Rahab. We think about the thousands of sacrifices over so many years performed at the tabernacle and the temple. And that scarlet thread runs all the way up to John the Baptist's declaration where he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that scarlet thread runs right to the foot of the cross where Jesus finally says, it is finished. As he shed his blood for each one of us. Right? In Hebrews chapter 9, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that's this, the symbolism of the scarlet thread is so significant because it points to us, it's the Jesus' atonement for mankind's sins that's found all the way through the scriptures from the beginning. And it's the very same reality that the apostles would preach to the church in the book of Acts. We think about what Peter preached in Acts 4 to the ruling council. He says, look, let it be known to you all and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, this is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So make no mistake, hear him is still God's message because Jesus is God's last word and it's his only word to all men, right? Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except by me. Again, he's absolutely central and he is who we need to be pointing people toward and he's who we need to be focused on. And the very next verse, there's this beautiful kind of a visible illustration of that reality. It says suddenly, in verse 8, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. So just as quickly as it had come, right, the cloud was gone, Moses had left, Elijah had disappeared, and their entire focus was forced again right back onto Jesus. Now, this may seem obvious, but that never stopped me before. Think through the options with me, right? It could have been that after the events of the transfiguration, it could have been that no one remained with the disciples, right? No Moses, no Elijah, no Jesus. And I think that so often that is exactly what happens to so many. They have some sort of a spiritual encounter, but when it's over, it's over, right? It's done and gone, and there's nothing that remains. Right now, it may have been that after the events of the transfiguration that only Moses remained, right? And Moses was a great man, but again, compared to Jesus, Moses was like the moon is to the sun. And it would be very sad to exchange the, the, the grace and truth that came by Jesus for the law that came by Moses. And yet, isn't that what so many are doing today? Right, as they just try to live lives in bondage to the law, right, trying to live by that. Now, it could have been after the events of the transfiguration that only Elijah remained for the disciples. Again, Elijah was a great man. He had great power of his word. He had this wonder of these miracles that he did. He, he had this boldness right, in these national reforms that he was responsible for. And so many today, I think, are in an increasing way, they're chasing after the miraculous manifestations and the miracles of Elijah because they're looking to right the wrongs that are all around them. And yet again, even all of this, it doesn't compare to the person and the work of Jesus only. And again, it was Spurgeon who said so much better than I could. He said that though the apostles saw Jesus only, they saw quite sufficient for Jesus is enough for time and eternity, enough to live by and enough to die by. Oh, look to him, and though it be Jesus only, though Moses should condemn you and Elijah should alarm you, yet Jesus only shall be enough to comfort and enough to save you. Right? They saw Jesus only, and that's so key for us, church, right? May we not try to look for Moses, right? Trying to justify ourselves by keeping the law and putting ourselves in this legalistic relationship with the Lord we were never meant to have. 
right? May we not try to follow the prophets, right? Where we're just out there kind of searching for the latest Elijah and some supernatural manifestation just to hype us up and kind of get us through. And instead, I think that there is such great encouragement for here just in how we each walk every day in our Christian lives. Because the Lord Jesus is still all that we need not just for our initial salvation as we enter into the kingdom, but now as citizens of that kingdom as we navigate life still here in this fallen world. And I think that the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Colossians, remember when we went through it, he kind of takes this to its logical conclusion where he says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So again, when we are looking for answers, what should we do? We just need to hear him, right? We simply need to hear Jesus. And despite what the world would have us to believe, the Bible says that all wisdom and all knowledge is there in Jesus, right? Again, if you study it out, that word in the Greek, all, what does it mean? It means all, everything. Right? So anyone that desires wisdom to navigate this life successfully, we have to come to the realization that there is nothing more, there's nothing less, there's nothing else than Jesus. That's the glory, not only of his humility or his centrality, but I think that's the glory of his sufficiency. Right? All of these treasures are already there in him, and we don't need to keep looking outside of him. I think I've told this story before, but it's a story of William Randolph Hearst, right, of this great, the publishing Hearst's and Hearst Castle and all of that. And he was looking through a book of famous artwork one day, and there was one that caught his eye. And so he called one of his assistants, and he says, I want this painting for my collection. But they made some inquiries, and they reported back, and they said, we can't find it. And he said, look, if you value your jobs, you will find who has that painting, and you will get it for me. And it took three and a half months And his aides finally came back to him and he said, did you find the treasure? And they said, yes, we did. After much painstaking searching, we found it. And he said, did you purchase it? They said, no. And he said, well, why not? They said, because you already own it. We found it in your warehouse. Right? And so too, we have already found all the wisdom all the knowledge that we could possibly need to get through life successfully, right? When you've got Jesus, you've got it all. And so the Father says, hear him. And I, and I think, you know, for all of us, as we draw closer to him, don't we find that, that questions are answered and perplexities are made clear and doubts are dissolved? And so my prayer for us as a church, right, for each and every one of us as individual Christians, is that we would have eyes that are increasingly just focused on Jesus alone and what he can do and what he has done for mankind. So look, as we finish up this last section, verses 9 through 13, I think we get this kind of a glimpse of the glory of the ministry of Jesus. Look what it says. It says, as they came down from the mountain... He commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Here's Jesus again talking about this rising from the dead. Well, his hour had not yet come, right? 
So on a, just a purely practical, just a very pragmatic level, right, people had already tried to make Jesus king by force, remember, after the miracle of the loaves. And if they had any, if they got a hint of this heavenly display, right, if that became commonly known, they would have tried even harder to make him king. So also on a theological level, though, here's the important part, is that it was the resurrection of Jesus that was what was to be the final confirmation of his ministry. That would be the final revelation of his glory. He said that was the one sign that would be given. Remember the sign of the prophet Jonah. So it's the resurrection, not the transfiguration, but it's the resurrection that's really the culmination of the whole gospel. The transfiguration revealed glory, but the resurrection declares victory. Right, ultimate final victory over sin and death. And Jesus' sights were set on nothing less than that. Right, the resurrection was to be the final confirmation. It was to be the ultimate demonstration. The transfiguration was temporary, but the resurrection would be eternal. But here's the thing. The resurrection could only come after the crucifixion. And this is where the disciples still couldn't put all the pieces together. Right? There's so much, of course, that they still didn't understand. And I have to think that in some ways this event had just opened up more questions. Right Here they'd just been given this wonderful taste of the kingdom. They'd seen Moses. They'd seen Elijah there in this radiant glory with Jesus. But they were puzzled as they processed through everything they'd just seen. It says in verse 11 that they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Right, so Peter, James, and John, they're walking down the mountain. They're still perplexed because they had been taught, as every good Jewish boy had been taught, based on Malachi chapter 4, that Elijah would come first to prepare the path for the Messiah. And so believing Jesus was the Messiah, the disciples here were asking him why Elijah hadn't come yet and made his earthly appearance. They started to wonder, was the presence of Elijah up here on this mountain, was that maybe the fulfillment of that prophecy? And then Jesus answered and told them in verse 12, he said, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the son of man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So Jesus gives them kind of this twofold answer, right? Elijah would come physically, just as Malachi predicted, but many actually believe, as do I, that Elijah is going to be one of those two witnesses, right, whose very strange and unique ministry is kind of described for us during the tribulation in Revelation chapter 11, they appear there outside the temple and they, they testify just prior to the bodily return of Jesus to the earth, right? So that's the physical fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. But spiritually speaking, Jesus explains here that Elijah already had come in the person of John the Baptist. John the Baptist ministered in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. His ministry was very reminiscent of, and it really resembled that, of Elijah. 
Right here's John boldly calling the people back to repentance just as Elijah had done. He's out there living off locusts and he's sounding like one of the Old Testament prophets. So John wasn't a reincarnation of Elijah, but he ministered in the role and in the spirit of Elijah. And John the Baptist, in a lot of ways, in his type and, and uh, in his life and his death, he was a type, he was a picture of Elijah. Think about it. Elijah, if you know his story, he suffered great persecution at the hands of wicked King Ahab and his wickeder wife Jezebel. Right? John the Baptist, we remember, had experienced a very similar kind of ruthless, arbitrary suffering and ultimately death at the hands of another wicked, evil power couple. Remember King Herod Antipas and his sister-in-law and now wife, Herodias. And just as Jesus says here, they did to him, they did to John, whatever it was they wished. Now, some sort of a light bulb must have gone off here for the disciples because Matthew tells us that the disciples made this connection. It says in Matthew 17 that then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, as we pause and I think as we consider this very mysterious miracle of the transfiguration, I actually think that there's a very practical, a very encouraging takeaway for each and every one of us personally. Right here in this, this manifestation, really this, what is just a revelation of the glory that Jesus already had, right? It wasn't a reflected glory. We said that it was this radiant glory, that it emanated from within him. And in fact, the word transfigured here, look way, way back up in verse two. It's the Greek word from where we get our English word metamorphosis. And metamorphosis, you know, it speaks of a change on the outside that comes from the inside, right? Like when a caterpillar builds a cocoon and then emerges as a butterfly, it's due to the process of metamorphosis, right? So zoologically, metamorphosis is the process of transformation from an immature form to an adult form. Right? Developmentally, it's a change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one. They actually say by natural or supernatural means. Now, spiritually, metamorphosis is precisely what is happening each and every day with each and every one of us who are believers here in this room this morning. Paul talks about, to the Corinthians, he writes and he says that we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, he says we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. To the Colossians, he said that God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, he says, which is what? It's Christ in you the hope of glory. So it's through that indwelling work of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, right? Each one of us as believers in Jesus, that very glory of Jesus is within us and it's transforming us from the inside out. But here's the rub, right? Here's where the rubber reaches the road, right? So, so don't tune out, you guys. Tune back in 
Because I think this is where this whole picture comes together for us. Because remember that for Jesus, the true glory of the resurrection could only come what? After the crucifixion. And the very same thing is true for us because Mark chapter 9 always comes after Mark chapter 8. I know, that's earth shattering. Mark chapter 9 always comes after chapter 8. Now think this through, right? Think about the way that Mark's gospel has unfolded. Think about the way that the ministry of Jesus has unfolded. This glimpse here of the ultimate glory of Jesus into which we are being transformed, right, from glory to glory, it comes immediately after the call to Jesus to our own crucifixion, right? Mark 9 comes after Mark 8. Right, so just turn back or look up or swipe right or scroll up or do whatever you have to, but look quickly back at Mark 8, those last few verses, right, comes just before he was transfigured. Remember this from last week? He'd called the disciples to himself and he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, right, whoever wants to go with me to this place of glory where I'm going, says, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You guys remember that from last week? You thought we were done with that? <laughs> As if. But you guys remember from last week, right? The pathway to glory is the suffering of the cross, right? It's death to self. And we talked about the fact that in Jesus' time to take up your cross meant one thing. It meant you were going to certain death. And your only hope was in the power of the resurrection, right? And so for us to, to take up the cross, it means to die to who we once were in the flesh. It means now, now we start to live according to the power of the Spirit of God so that the glory of Jesus is more evident through our lives, right? That's the glory of his cross as the cross does its work in our lives. Right, Paul said that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Because you see, Jesus can't fully live through us. Jesus can't actually be revealed in us until the flesh, that proud self within us, has to be broken and has to be crucified. You know, another classic book on our summer reading list, it's called The Calvary Road. And it highlights this process perhaps better than any book I've ever read. Here's a quick excerpt from it. Roy Hessian writes this. He said, the Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself through us until the proud self within us is broken. And this simply means that the hard, unyielding self, which justifies itself, wants its own way, stands up for its rights and seeks its own glory, at last bows its head to God's will admits it's wrong, gives up its own way to Jesus, surrenders its rights and, rights and discards its own glory, that the Lord Jesus might have all and be all. In other words, it is dying to self and self-attitudes. And think about it, guys. These are the things that make us not like Jesus. Right? These are the things that make us miserable. These are the things that create conflict in us and around us. It's always self 
who gets irritable and gets envious and resentful and critical and worried, right? It's always the self that is hard and unyielding in the way that we look towards others, right? Our attitudes towards them. It's always the self that makes us shy and self-conscious and overly reserved. It's always self who's always thinking of itself. And so now in the context here of this miracle of the transformation, these are the very same things that are going to prevent people from seeing the glory of Jesus that's already there inside of us. Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God might be a the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. The problem is that these old earthen vessels, right, the self of our fleshly selves, those earthly vessels are keeping that glory from being able to shine forth and be seen. And we're going to close with this great story. It's a wonderful story from the Old Testament. You guys all know the story of Gideon from Judges chapter 7. Well, it is the Old Testament illustration of this foundational New Testament truth. And you Bible students all know the story, right? We've got the Midianites who were oppressing Israel, right? They were charging these taxes and plundering their cities. And they were you know, mercilessly tormenting Israel until God called this reluctant guy Gideon to be the deliverer of his people. And when Gideon called the men of Israel to gather together and march with him into battle against the Midianites, 32,000 men of Israel responded. And yet Gideon said to the Lord, hey Lord, there's 145,000 Midianites, there's only 32,000 of us, I don't like the odds. And God said, I don't like them either, there's way too many of you guys. And you know the story, God very patiently worked with Gideon painfully reducing his forces from these 32,000 fearless fighters, I think, down to these 300 feeble men that couldn't even get all the way down to drink water. They had to scoop it up into their mouths, right? And, and then, fully stripped of his own resources, now Gideon was finally at this place, and he was in this position where God could use him. And remember, then, God gives him this strange kind of a three-point plan. Each guy was supposed to get three things, a trumpet, a torch, and an earthen vessel, right? A big clay pot. And what he instructed the people to do is put their lit torches inside the clay pots, right? So that their light couldn't be seen. And then he positioned this 300 men on the hills surrounding this huge valley where the 145,000 Midianites were sleeping. 300 guys up on the hill, 145 warriors sleeping down below. And at a very precise time and at this given signal, they blew the trumpets, they broke the pots, it revealed this blazing light of each of their torches, and they shouted, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And of course, the Midianites, the soldiers hear the sound, they look up, they see this ring of lights surrounding them, and what they assumed is that each one of the torches didn't represent just a single soldier, because that was unheard of, but that each torch probably represented an entire division of soldiers, 300 divisions of soldiers, and they cried out, we're surrounded by thousands, and the Bible says that in their confusion, the Midianites actually began to kill one another 
and God delivered them into the hands of the Israelites. And of course, we all see the point, right? There was victory in the dark night because the light caused the enemy to be confused and to be beaten back. And yet the point of the story for us is that the light could only be seen when those earthen vessels, right, those clay pots that were hiding their brightness, those vessels had to be completely broken. Right? And in our lives, that beautiful light of Jesus Christ in us, it can only be revealed to the, word, uh, the world around us when we, right, we are the earthen vessels, we are the clay pots, and we need to be broken open. And we need to allow that light to really be able to radiate from us. And that process is always painful, right? Because transfiguration always comes in our lives. It always comes in our ministries. But it always comes after, right? The transfiguration always comes after the culture crucifixion, right? Mark 9 always comes after Mark 8. And that's the only way people are going to see this glimpse of the glory of Jesus in each of our lives. Now, as we finish up and prepare for communion, walking with Jesus, you guys, it doesn't just mean this whole life of death and of carrying crosses, right? It doesn't just mean Mark 8, but it also means this life of power and this life of glory of the kingdom, right? It means that life being revealed now through us. It means transfiguration of our lives, like in Mark 9. It's a wonderful exchange rate that God gives us, isn't it, in the Christian economy, right? This undeniable truth, our suffering, but our suffering always leads to the revelation of his glory. And specifically this morning, what our suffering produces is it produces these glimpses of the glory of Jesus that people can see in our lives as his followers. And isn't that worth it? So as the team comes up and as we prepare to take communion this morning, again, these are simply things that we can reflect on. You know, we can reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus for us on the cross. We can reflect on his coming for us, right? We can reflect on the work that he's doing right now in us and through us so that other people can know this very same uh, wondrous miracle of salvation in their lives. So we always say that communion here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View is what's called open communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to take communion with us. In fact, we don't even have membership at our church. If you show up, you are a part of this church family. So if you're here today and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, because communion is for believers, right? we're looking back at what it is that Jesus has done for us. But if you're here today and you're a believer, we would invite you to take communion with us. If you're here today and you're not a believer, we would also invite you to, to take communion, but you need to become a believer first, and we can help you with that too. Right? As, we, as the team starts to play and as we start to worship, uh, we'll uncover the elements, and you're welcome to come forward and to pick them up and take them back to your seat. Spend some time with the Lord just considering some of these themes. And then when you're ready, you can go ahead and, and take the communion elements on your own. If you need prayer for anything prior to taking communion, 
Pastor Chris is here and Helen is here. They would love to pray uh, with you. They'd love to pray for you. If you have questions about how to start a relationship with Jesus, they can answer those questions and help to guide you through uh, that process and you can enjoy communion with us uh, today. So uh, let's pray and just ask the Lord to continue to minister uh, in our time of communion. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for today and we thank you so much for this uh, miraculous work that you've done in us, Lord. Not only have you saved us, Lord, but now you want to reveal your glory through us. Lord, the glory that lives inside of each of us, Lord. And we pray that we would simply get out of the way, Lord, and that we would stop obscuring that glory, Lord. We want people to be able to see you in us and to be drawn into a relationship with you because of what they see. So, Father, we pray even now as we go to this time of communion. Lord, of course, I pray if there are those here who don't yet know you and have a desire to take that first step, Lord, in, in entering into a relationship with you, I pray, Lord, that they would um, just simply raise their hands where they are, Lord, that we could come to them, Lord, that we could pray with them. I pray that you would have them come up to, to talk to one of the prayer counselors. Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that you would just really minister to our hearts this morning, Lord. Speak to us personally now during this time as you, uh, uh, just the reality of your sacrifice is, is fresh and new in our hearts today. And we thank you, Lord. We pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, uh, you can stand, you can stay seated, you can come up in line, but let's worship the Lord together as we, uh, as we participate in communion today. <laughs> 